Welcome to Utopian Horizons. Hello and welcome to episode 21 of Utopian Horizons, a podcast where I cover a different utopia, dystopia, utopian thinker or movement in each episode. I'll begin by making my customary apology about how long it's been since the last episode. Sorry, that's just kind of the way it is sometimes. Ideally, I'd like to be in a situation where I could put out an episode every two weeks, but I'm in a kind of chicken and egg situation with the money that I get from the Patreon. I don't make enough money to be able to put the amount of time I'd like to into the podcast to get episodes out that regularly. And probably while I can't do that, I'm not going to get that money. But hey, that's the way it is. I will continue to do the best that I can. This episode is about a Philip K. Dick novel called The Simulacra. If you're new to the podcast, I am going to be working my way through every Philip K. Dick novel. Most of my episodes are done as interviews. Uh, The Philip K. Dick ones I'm doing by myself. I've done uh, four, I think, so far. I think it's worth going back to the first Philip K. Dick one um, that I did if you haven't listened to any of those just because that's uh, on time out of joint just because uh, I kind of give some context there for Dick's work as a whole and kind of themes he deals with and so on and so forth. So it might be worth checking that out if you're interested. So, The Simulacra, published in 1964. Uh, This might be a bit of a confused episode, which I can at least partly blame on the fact that this is a very confused book. Um, I've talked a bit before about the rate that Dick was producing work at. Um, I think I said in the last last Philip K. Dick episode I did that he wrote three novels the same year, of which this is one. That might be slightly wrong, but it's something like that. Whatever I said in the last one, that was correct because I checked. But anyway, I've, yeah, I've mentioned before about there's this tension of him trying to create a science fiction which he definitely took seriously, and um, you know, who would have thought about himself as somebody who was producing art, but also the fact that he was churning out genre fiction on a production line, trying to survive. Um, this book is an example of how that can negatively affect them. Um, It's quite common for his books to have this quality of him chucking a million ideas at the wall and sometimes all those ideas don't quite get followed up. Sometimes, despite that chaotic approach, they come together in really interesting ways and even it can even be the case that the contradictions that are left there, the half-developed threads that are there, can end up being a strength of the novel, which intentionally or not enhances the the themes and the the feel of his books sometimes that approach can just end up creating a bit of a mess and that's what you get here um the twists that philip k dick novels quite typically take to pull the the rug out from under you they're ill contrived here they're badly thought out they don't really have any impact or, or depth but still, I think we can try and extract something interesting for the, from this book. Um, if you haven't already realised, my approach is not always to talk about or analyse what the author or filmmaker or whatever is presenting, but I'm just using their work as a jumping off point or a lens to think or talk about things that uh, I want to talk about, basically, or, or things that relate to con- contemporary issues around utopianism, dystopianism, and so on. I will begin with a synopsis. I doubt many people would have read this book, so that will be helpful. Doing a synopsis is always difficult for Philip K. Dick books, but particularly with this one, because it kind of doesn't really have a coherent story. There are so many weird ideas in it that would be impossible for me to touch on them at all, or it would be boring for me to touch on them all. But um, I will do the best I can to go through the main points. So this is a dystopian world where people are divided into two classes, B's and G's. That is, I think that's how you meant to say it. It's spelt like not as the letters. It's B E S. B's and G's. G E S. Broadly speaking, we can say that B's are like the working class or the ninety-nine percent ordinary people, however you want to think about it, and the G's are the elite. Uh, this is not just about money, though. That is a part of it. It's also about the fact that. G's have a kind of secret knowledge about the way things really are, which we find out about as the novel goes on. Within this dystopian world, there's kind of uh, like a hint of a utopian idea, I guess. There's like co-op, uh, co-op kind of cooperative housing. 
a few of the characters, um, Chick Strike Rock and Vince Strike Rock, which is a classic kind of uh, weird Philip K. Dick names. Um, they live in a communal... Uh, Ian Duncan as well, who we'll talk about those characters. But um, they live in a communal apartment building where there's a chairman that rotates between every resident in the building. Uh, it talks about roof repairs and being funded communally. So yeah, there's kind of a cooperative control, a democratic control of this housing, which you might think is a utopian idea, but it's not really presented as such here um, because it's kind of mixed with like a hellish fascist bureaucracy almost. So you have to apply to get into these buildings and you have to like pass various tests to basically say that you're good enough so one of the characters he's struggling with doing like um, a a political test on political history and you have to keep doing these tests periodically and if you if you don't meet the standards of the building you you get chucked out um i think part of this is if philip k dick has a kind of fear of the communal or like having an obligation to others but also perhaps it speaks to how some think that is utopian or like utopian idea can become warped if it's part of a a system which is fundamentally dystopian in some way which is the the case here certainly uh, it's very good at at, um kind of representing like personal jealousies and pettiness um i think that's something you have to take into account in some way when you're thinking about utopian communities i won't say too much more about that but if you go back and listen to my second episode with Peter Frace, uh, who wrote a book called Four Futures, and he's where he's investigating like different uh, utopian or dystopian futures that we might have, and he talks about like how important it is to recognise that things like envy and so on don't like automatically disappear uh, in utopian society. So anyway, yeah, Philip K. is quite good at thinking about or representing those things. I'm not sure he has as much to say about them as such but there's a utopian question there as to whether you treat these things as being part of human nature that you have to mitigate in some way or whether these are things that emerge because of inherent problems in the system yeah i think it's something interesting to think about uh anyway i've wildly gone off from the synopsis thing so anyway this is a world that um appears to be divided into two parts like a soviet world i don't know if he explicitly calls it soviet but that's basically what it is and the usea the united states of europe and america i don't think i've talked too much about the fact that philip k dick is definitely a product of the cold war and the fear of the the cold war is something that permeates a lot of his work of course utopias and dystopias reflect the anxieties of the the time in which they are written so this idea of two war two warring superpowers the threat of nuclear war that's in loads of his novels that consistently reappears um sometimes it's more in the background sometimes it's more in the foreground but it's often there and uh that's the case here kind of another side note the two parties the two main parties uh, in america have become one uh Republicans and Democrats, uh, America's become a one-party state. So that's kind of reflective of the political trajectory that was to come after that to to some degree, I suppose. Um, The political structure in this place, the US is uh, ruled by the First Lady or de facto ruled by the First Lady. So every four years, people vote for a new de alta, uh, which means like old man in Germany, in in German, sorry. I don't think Philip K. has got a clear idea of why he's decided to use German here. There's various references to fascism and Nazism. I don't, I don't think there's anything particularly well thought out there. But anyway, that's what he's called. They elected De Alta, which is effectively kind of like the president. But what they're electing is the man that they think Nicole, who is the first lady, will like best as a husband. But he's, he's meant to be in power, but uh, really she's the one that rules. Um, so yeah the whole nation is kind of obsessed with Nicole she is uh, a first lady but also like a celebrity she goes on tv and does speeches it's a bit where like she does like a kind of documentary interview of oceanographers talking about the sea so she's kind of like a tv presenter slash celebrity slash politician again uh, this idea of politics and celebrity merging in some way is, is prescient and something that we're dealing with america tends to be the ultimate expression of a lot of trends i think and certainly we have that with donald trump when it comes to 
celebrity and politics melding in that way so yeah that's kind of overview of the world which is probably longer than it should have been but anyway i will quickly blast through some of the plot threads to give you an idea of what kind of strange novel this is so a new government act called the mcpherson act is passed which bans psychiatry a psychiatrist called dr egon superb another great philip k dick name um is given license to continue by a mysterious government employee on the condition that he accepts every new patient uh, on the basis that there's one person that they want him to treat so at some point that guy's going to turn up not because they want him to be cured but because they want to keep him insane the government in this world has access to time travel equipment so they have checked and they know that he will not be able to cure him if this guy is forced to go uh, the, the pharmacy route and and uh, use chemical therapy, as, the, as they say, they know that will work and cure him and they don't want that to happen. That's one plot thread. Another one. A man called Ian Duncan is on the verge of being chucked out of his commuter building for failing those regular tests I mentioned previously. He goes on a quest to get back his old uh, partner who currently works in a jalopy jungle which is an illegal flyable lot where people can buy uh, ramshackle spaceships, basically, that are called Jalopies in the hope of getting to Mars. And he is searching for this old partner of his to reform their classical music jug band and finally succeed at getting to play at the White House in this world or... Basically, all talent of any kind is signed on exclusive contracts to perform at, at the White House. Next plot thread. The government brings Hermann Goering into the future to negotiate with him uh, and help the Nazis win the war, making a deal that he won't kill Jews, um, as uh, won't commit the Holocaust, basically, as payment for that. So their idea, uh, what they've looked into, the possibilities, even though the war will be extended, and they will the nazis will win they think it will inevitably eventually collapse and they'll kind of save lives uh in the long run matt flieger who works for a record company is sent to the house of a reclusive psychic piano player named richard congrossian who plays the piano with his mind in an attempt to persuade him to record some new material he unfortunately is having uh, a mental breakdown and he goes off uh, all sorts of other places so they never come into contact the contract for the next De Alta, the, as I mentioned, the kind of prime minister, um, the contract to make, make the next De Alta, because he is a simulacra. He's not really a person that's elected. That's one of the secrets that the Jews have. Um, that contract is unexpectedly taken away from a giant firm or a, or a cartel, as they call it in the book, as a cartel system called Carpenson and as a way to try and break some of their power by the government and that triggers a plot for a coup i'll give you one more plot thread a neo-nazi or perhaps not named bertolt goltz leads a concerning populist movement called the sons of job and periodically pops up to annoy nicole and the government using his own time travel equipment equipment that's effectively made him impossible to kill so yeah that's just a few of the plot threads and that hopefully gives you an idea of how kind of all over the place uh, this book is and how many different things there are going on i'm sorry if that was far too long first thing i want to talk about this book is uh mental health there's quite a bit in there about that there's quite a bit about the pharmaceutical industry and psychoanalysis the first thing this made me think of was because in this book the pharmaceutical industry have lobbied for psychoanalysis to be banned basically for profit they're like getting rid of the competition and they're kind of you know dishing out pills willy-nilly for everything misdiagnosing people which uh, instantly made me think of that shitty guy who wrote that rubbish book about how you know the same kind of thing like basically the pharmaceutical industry i don't know it's like invented depression and they're giving any everyone pills to make money and that's not the real way to deal with it which anyone who has any knowledge of uh, mental health problems or experiences mental health problems will tell you that's a very dangerous thing to say and bullshit basically um by the way this guy if you don't know who wrote this book he was formerly a journalist who got caught plagiarizing and maliciously editing the wikipedia pages of anyone who criticized him um and for some reason when he came back a few years later after that scandal with a book everyone just took him seriously and took him at face value rather than thinking that maybe this guy might be might not be the best person to listen to but hey there you go um now obviously i think there are problems with the pharmaceutical industry. I don't 
doubt there are cases where pills are prescribed where they shouldn't be. In fact, I know they are. For example, you may know about the opiate problems in the US where uh, pharmaceutical industry was, was uh, pushing um, painkillers that were being prescribed. A lot of people got addicted to them. They then they were then banned and basically a load of people ended up uh, on illegal and more dangerous drugs. So yes, there are problems with, with the pharmaceutical industry, um, but that doesn't mean that like depression is fake and you don't need to take medication or, or whatever it is um in fairness this book is is um the simulacra is not quite going that far it does have a line in there when the, the guys the psychiatrist is talking he says we can help just as chemical therapy can help so there is an acknowledgement that though the pharmaceutical industry can do a lot of uh, damage or rather it will do damage in like the profit motive like there is something valued in in that it can do something worthwhile so if you are thinking in a, I don't know, utopian way about how we could help people with mental health problems, like could we provide them with uh, counselling or psychotherapy? Can we provide them with drugs? So on and so forth. You have to not just think about things that you can provide, but acknowledge how these different uh, methods will be corrupted by profit, which is, is what what happens here the point is that the pharmaceutical industry must necessarily treat psychoanalysis as competition because uh, it's in, in a capitalist system and it has to respond in that way and it eliminates its its competition uh, i've already mentioned like the opiate scandal but another thing of pharmaceutical industry there was i don't know what year it is but a few years back the ceo that earned the most in america i think was a good was a ceo of a pharmaceutical company and what they would do is they would buy up um, other companies they would lay off all the uh, r&d department because researching new drugs and stuff can be expensive and then they would jack up all the prices of the drugs that that company owned uh, and made shitloads of money so this is an illustration of the way you need to think about value like what kind of value inverted commas is being created this CEO was creating value in the sense of he was creating money, he was creating money for himself and his shareholders, but the value of, of what pharmaceutical schools can do for us, um, you know, the value of researching new drugs that can help people and providing something that can help people, um, that kind of value is not something that's going to be uh, prioritised in a capitalist system. So I think that's something that this this depiction of the pharmaceutical industry is useful for thinking about like there's nothing necessarily there's nothing problematic about pharmaceuticals per se it's about how a pharmaceutical how the pharmaceutical industry functions in the context of capitalism um i don't necessarily think that philip kiddick is always uh anti-capitalism per se by the way i should say like you quite often find stuff in his work like um kind of idea that he likes small businesses over inhuman uh, like massive corporations as opposed to being like anti-capitalist per se that's in this book i think um yeah uh the next thing that comes to mind is a uh theme that we would have probably touched on in every philip k dick book because he consistently returns to it is the blurring of the lines between the artificial and the organic so as i've said before this relates to this uh kind of depicting like postmodern reality or late capitalist reality which philip k dick is very good at mapping this idea that consumerism or capital and so on is infecting everything with a sense of the artificial so that everything starts to feel fake on a on an existential level a few examples of this uh, dr egon superb i've already already mentioned he ends up with reporting machines in his home so it's like these like little flying reporting machines that get in everywhere and he wishes there was some way to stop them getting in but within this this dystopia you can't stop them getting in these these things get where they want to they are there with um as he says in the book extended hose-like receptors sucking in data rapidly similarly there are these commercials that are like uh, flies i guess um, as in the insect like they fly around and speak and read our ads um like there's a bit where a commercial he talks about a commercial attaching itself to a car trying to crawl in and get inside uh it's a quote from the book here it was alive terribly mortal the ad agencies like nature squandered hordes of them so again you can see that barrier between the organic and and the artificial being erased these these flies like the ad, ad agency and nature being being compared 
and again the, just the idea of it like crawling in the gaps of your car like trying to get, there's this idea that this this stuff is pervasive like you can't escape from it there's one more example of that as a recording machine which is a living thing like it's an alien that's been discovered like a not like an alien that walks around and talks like a i don't know some kind of like slime or something like that but um here's the quote from the book the ganymedian life form did not experience pain and had not yet objected to being made into a portion of an electronic system so yeah this electronic recording alien system again obvious blurring uh, but also indicative of the society that he's in. They discover alien life, like an incredible thing, this amazing discovery, and they turn it into a product. Again, they have to find its value. And this is, again, that something that I've, I think I've mentioned before, like consumerism, rarefying everything, like making everything into some, an object, an artificial. This is what happens to an alien life form. It is turned into... It's necessarily turned into a product. It's necessarily turned into something artificial. So yeah, in this world, we have adverts flying into your place of work, crawling into your car, reporting machines in your home. This is about the pervasiveness of advertising, which perhaps we've now become numb to to an extent. But you know, it's particularly with technology now and how advertisements are kind of weaved into our social networks and our data feeds into advertising, which fed back to us in, in various different ways. Um, but again, it's really important what he's getting out here, that this this invasiveness, this this is this stuff is a part of your world. It's part of the fabric of reality. You can't, you can no longer shut this stuff out. It is reality. And yeah, these lines just continue to blur. As I hinted out there, like this line between like customer and the product we do work refining algorithms without knowing ads speak to us uh, in, a, in a direct way different to the way these flies like literally speak to you but these these ads like the reporting machines sucking in our data our data is being sucked in and fed back to us by advertisements um and what philip k dick doing is doing here is kind of mapping the, the terror of this idea that this is now a part of your reality like your your reality is now artificial. It's not that you're giving being giving an artificial view of reality in some way. Like reality is now artificial. Consumerism is now your reality. Yeah, just one other related thing on that. He talks uh, chick strike work, I already mentioned. Um, finds out. I think he reads in a newspaper that's been more unicellular fossils discover on Ganymede, uh, whatever alien planet that is, and he imagines auto miners uncovering another layer below that filled with comics and coke bottles it says in the book it was impossible for him to conceive of a civilization that had not contrived coke so yeah again capitalism like is our total reality you can't see beyond its horizons to the point that you imagine if we excavated an alien civilization of course there would be coke there Another thing that's going on here uh, that is interesting is the way Philip K. Dick thinks about systems and reality and this repeated theme of needing to escape, which um talked about a bit in the Martian time slip episode and the colony as like a, a way of escape. So if, I think it's interesting to think about this in the context of technocracy, which I think is uh, losing its power to some degree now, but that's been dominant in western politics for decades you think about the kind of centrist hysteria about ideology uh horseshoe theory which i've talked about before this it's like trash idea that the left and the right are both the same because they are kind of blinded by ideology and they necessarily end up in the same place whereas you have you know sensible people who present themselves as only being interested in facts and logic and they think they are ideology free um and the people that disagree with them they are the one they are the only ones who are subject to ideology if they weren't then they would think like they do uh which is of course the most ideological position possible here um this is an example of what what dick is suggesting is that on the contrary you necessarily live within a constructed reality that's defined ideology and uh, it's not easy to escape that. So, for example, when he's talking about Richard Congrosian, who is the psychic piano player I previously mentioned, he says, like many artists, Congrosian travelled his own way, somewhere in between the two overpowering social realities. 
so the two overpowering social realities are the, the Soviet state and the United States of uh, Europe and America. This is not something that's easy for Congressian to do. He is deeply um, troubled by uh, mental illness, so um, this is not something that's that's easy to do. Um, another example of this, uh, one of the characters says, when he's talking about emigrating to Mars, he says, maybe I ought to emigrate to colonial reality, which is an interesting turn of phrase, like not maybe I should emigrate to Mars, maybe maybe I should start a new life for myself, whatever. He talks about moving to a new reality. I think that's something useful in recognising that um, your culture, the, the culture that you live in is necessarily a reality that's in some degree created by the ideology. Um, thinking about to Philip K. Dick's own context, of course, like it's so obvious to look at now um, the kind of propaganda that existed in, in both nations and their, their views of the world, of themselves, as of others as yeah social realities like constructive realities that affect the way that people live there perceive themselves the others the outside world and so on that's obvious with hindsight and yet we think that doesn't apply now um philip k dick is here trying to make that very clear that that um these are all constructive realities uh indeed what you're doing uh when you're thinking as a utopian you're creating a new reality you're thinking of a different way that things could be um which in a sense not i don't just mean in like an imaginary way in some way you are creating uh you are creating a new reality so that is the the power that it has in a sense so yeah even though you, you recognize that your reality that you live in is fake there's something positive in that because the very idea that it's constructed means that you are free to create a new one if you know it's constructed you can deconstruct it you can create something else so um yeah i think that's useful to to have if you think that you're uniquely free of ideology you are kidding yourself it's the most basic mistake you can make um see i i just i really like the way that philip kadek brings that uh, artificial nature of um reality to the forefront of thinking about culture or whatever is, is constructed this idea of of needing to escape that i, I mentioned that's being repeated here that's mostly uh, emigrating to mars or also mentioned as, as joining the sons of job it's, it constantly comes up in the book like people talking about escaping or feeling an urge to escape uh through these these different routes um the sons of job when he talks about uh, national neuroses and this whole thing of because nicole is now in charge like it's like a matriarchal society which i don't think it really is when you look at the, the rest of it but this idea of not being men and women being charged um and this guy says if i drew in bertolt Gotts and sons of job i could be a real man uh reading that in the context of the that alt right is interesting um various movements like similar to and around that I don't sure it's clear what Dick is trying to say there or where he's going with that, but uh, perhaps interesting to note. Um, in any case, uh, whether we're talking about Mars or the Sons of Job or whatever, this idea of utopia or dystopia needing a pressure valve is an interesting one. I think um, all these, a lot of these characters feel a need to get out of the oppressive system or reality that they're in. Um, and what's interesting there is that the establishment recognizes that they need that uh, an outlet for those people in some way so nicole talks about how she wants to leave i mentioned these legal jalopies where they're called uh it's owned by a guy called looney luke looney luke's jalopy jungles i think they're called and yeah they're illegal but that's you can go there and get to mars and nicole wants to leave looney luke alone she wants to let him do his thing leave the jalopies open she's aware um there's a need to leave an outlet to give the impression that it's not an oppressive society like she knows it is but if you're if she cracks down and shuts down this method for people to get out then she knows that that will kind of prove the point that, that they're oppressive. So something interesting in this idea that an outlet can help maintain the system uh, and its power. Um, that's something I'd like to return to again in some way. I know I haven't read it yet, but I know uh, I've got Triton by Samuel Delaney, which I think uh, has like a kind of uh, an area within the utopian city, which is like a free zone where anything goes, which is, I don't know, I just think that's an interesting idea. That's something I'd hopefully like to talk about again when I get to that book. So let's talk about Nicole, who I've mentioned repeatedly. As I said, she's a celebrity, a political figure. 
um, which is obviously relevant to kind of what's going on today. But uh, it's not just that. There's also something going on with the idea that the image has obtained primacy, which ties into someone. I don't know if Philip K. Dick was reading Jean Baudrillard or whatever, but uh, if you're familiar with any way with his book Simulacra and Simulation, I mention it because obviously the Simulacra title is obviously this book's called the Simulacra. Um, he's talking about the image or the Simulacra or the simulation, or whatever, becoming reality to the extent that there's no longer anything behind it. Uh, hence the phrase "the desert of the real." If you've you've probably at least heard it in the Matrix, but yeah, this idea that again going back to you know this idea of reality losing its depth in some way. Nicole as a as a figure is is repeatedly depicted as uh, not matching reality in some way. Like when when people see her uh, in reality, there's like anxiety connected to that because it's the image that is the most important thing, the image that's obtained primacy. Um, I'll return to that a, a bit in a minute. Ho- hopefully that'll make more sense what I'm saying. But <clears throat> to give you a couple of examples, there's a, a character who's Ian Duncan is. He's kind of obsessed with Nicole, perhaps more than any of the other characters. And he's, I think it's his jug band partner, Al, who says to him, you're involved with an illusion, something synthetic, unreal. And he replies, what's unreal and what's real? To me, she's more real than anything. So there's this idea of there, of we don't want the real in some way. So when, as I mentioned, when he sees her in person, there's kind of euphoria, but it also jars in some way it's problematic to him uh, he says can't we just go back to seeing it on the tv screen that's good enough for me i want that the image okay and yeah going back to this idea of images and, and reality like where is the real here so she is the de, the de alta is supposed to be in power but she is behind that fake power she controls oh so first of all we have the the, the de alta is a simulacra it's a fake it's an android basically behind that you have nicole who is supposed to be in charge. Uh, later on in the book, you find out that uh, Nicole died ages ago and Nicole is actually an actress playing Nicole. And then later on, you find out that there's a secret council behind her that she doesn't know that is. So there's there's always another... You try and find reality behind it and what you find is another image. You find another facade behind every layer. As with Baldria, I think what Philip K. Dick is trying to, or whether he's trying to or not, is... Uh, representing this kind of existential experience of late capitalist reality, the effect of consumerism on how we experience reality, or rather the lack of it, and its replacement by images and signs. Another interesting thing about Nicole is this scene where she's on a TV giving a speech, and Ian Duncan is adjusting knobs on the TV set to try and impact on the speech that she's hold, uh, holding so it's like everyone can kind of adjust some dials or whatever it's not explained very well it's not developed like a lot of things in this book but yeah this is the idea that you can try and get her to be what you want her to be to say what you want her to say again she's <clears throat> the image is detached from what they actually are i think this is really interesting in the co- in the context of people like uh angela merkel and macron who have become progressive saviors for some people like they you see these memes and stuff of of merkel macron as being predicted um depicted as like these yeah um progressive heroes like memes and stuff you know they're being contrasted to trump all the time so i mean this comes um partly because of brexit and um, because they are pro-European, then like they must be good for some people. I, d- I don't know why. But, um, I, don't, I don't want to be too like <laughs> snobby. Perhaps like people aren't aware of what these people really represent. So I should say, if you are have you know be one of those people who think, oh, aren't Macron and Macron great? We need these progressive politicians. Well, Macron, this is the guy who kind of praised uber and thought that was a model for what france should be doing and talks about creating a startup nation um, angela merkel we're talking about someone who voted against gay marriage in germany so these are your progressive saviors um hillary clinton's another great example of that like because she is uh against trump then or because she was uh, in opposition to trump she must be uh, a progressive icon of some kind this is a person that told wall street 
uh, in that leaked speech that she had a public position and a private position, basically telling them that she'd let them regulate themselves and not to worry about anything she said in public about regulating them in any way. This is a person who is Secretary of State supported an authoritarian military coup in Honduras, which sent that country spiralling into violence. Why did she do that? Well, the guy that they got rid of, uh, Zelaya, he oversaw some economic and social reforms, including a minimum wage, giving away energy-saving light bulbs, pledging to resolve land disputes between peasant farmers and agribusiness. So, yeah, Hillary Clinton doesn't seem to like that uh, radical uh, programme. Um, she also, of course, referred to young black people as super predators. Uh, all this stuff, this that's actually a really good example of all, all this stuff I'm talking about, twisting who these people actually are to fit the image of what you want or perceive them to be and that 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 last example is a, is a perfect one because there were people who continue to defend her um regarding that saying oh, she didn't actually say that um you can go and watch the speech and y- yes she did not say in a sentence uh young black people are super predators but it was a speech about talking about gang violence and drugs uh, and then she went on to mention kids and, and referred to them as super predators. Now, we all are quite capable of detecting dog whistle stuff in right-wing figures, but if you can hear it there, why can't you, you hear it here? It's, uh, with Hillary Clinton, is what I would say. Um, it was quite clear who she was talking about. It's quite clear when she was talking about gang violence and drugs and these kids and super predators that she meant young black kids. So, so yeah, she did say that. So yeah, anyway, twisting the dubs on the image, we are trying to make her into what we want or think she is. Um, say again, same with Macron, same with um, Merkel, because they in some way represent something that we like or against something that we don't like. We try to, we construct our own image, which d- does not represent the reality in any way. Um, crucially, when he's trying to twist the knobs to get the right image, it does not work. Uh, it's not effective. And I think that is an indication of what happens when you try to put your politics into the into a self-created image of, of a saviour figure. I should say, I do, just because I've um, focused on figures from the centre, I do enjoy attacking the centre. I should say, I don't think the left is, is necessarily immune to this. Um, you can see examples of it with like Bernie Sanders, who recently was very light on criticising Israel, uh, for murdering Palestinian civilians, he thought he said that abolishing ICE was going too far. And you look at the way people defend him uh, because he. I mean, my response to that would be like, we don't need to defend this guy. We could vote for him and use him when he's useful to our politics, and then we can drop him and move on to something better. Like we don't need to put too much into these figures. Anyway, that's uh, enough on that. Um, moving on to a kind of similar subject: ideology. Something that's interesting the way this book thinks about ideology is the suggestion that people will believe so when when the the whole thing about the the alta being a simulacra uh nicole being an actress whatever there's a threat that that's going to be revealed but there's a suggestion one of the characters suggests that it's not as bad as as they think that's going to be he suggests that people will still believe if they want to after the revelation and i think there's something important in understanding ideology that it's not as simple as like being tricked by something that's fake it when it's at its most effective it uh, includes an element of willing participation which is why which is why this person suggests like maybe it will the ideology will still continue to function even if it's revealed to people that it's it's not true um so there is an example of this uh again on a similar subject worried about worrying about the the alta being revealed one of the characters says um talking to nicole this is they're talking to nicole and they say it's clear to everyone bees and g's alike that you are the ultimate authority in the establishment and it's essential to maintain the myth that somehow indirectly at least you were placed there by the people by mass public vote so he's saying there, like everybody knows that you're really the one in charge but we need this thin layer of fiction to maintain the system every everybody knows on some level but for these people to continue to believe it we just need this little bit of fiction and then they will uh again it requires their participation like they they know it but they have to let that layer of fiction be maintained and 
by doing that, that is how it will be truly effective, which I think is a really important uh, way of understanding uh, ideology. There's another perspective this book offers on ideology uh, and kind of relates to advertising and marketing, or even the dissemination of ideology through techniques of marketing and PR or whatever. That's explored for a creature called the Papula, I think it would be pronounced, which is a psychic creature from Mars that's now extinct, but there are simulacra of them. Um, and Looney Luke gives the simulacra to his jalopy lot owners to kind of luring customers. So there's a scene where Al, the aforementioned jug band player who, who works in a, one of Looney Luke's lots, he's trying to lure in a, a customer. There's a family there and they see the little funny papula and they're like, oh, look at that. And it soothes and coaxes them and uses its psychic abilities to kind of make them feel love. It's from Mars, so it's communicating them to them about what Mars is like, what a great place it is. No one starts tapping into their anxieties. Like no, no one spies on each other's there. There's no tests that you have to do. Um, you can be your own boss, farm your own land. Obviously, it's trying to make them think Mars is great because there's a jalopy lot there where they can emigrate. And then the boy, the young boy that's with the family, he spots the jalopy place and he points it out to his his dad who realises that he's being softened up to have uh, a jalopy sold to him to go to Mars. But Al, as the book says, turns up the gain and lures him in. The guy says that he's going to leave, but he doesn't. He's, he's hooked in. So what's important here, the guy knows the scheme at this point. He's seen the scheme, but it works anyway. So even if you like know about the bullshit of advertising and PR, that knowledge does not does not necessarily inoculate you to its full effect. And we can probably all relate to that, right? I mean, some of us must have like bought some shit or like been taken in by some marketing or whatever, even though we know like what that is and how that functions. Again, I think that's important, this idea that the guy realizes what the scheme is, but it still works. Even if you even if it doesn't impact you in that direct way. There's another scene where Al is using, he starts using the papu, papula on Ian Duncan, who I've mentioned, his jug band partner, to try and persuade him to let him use the papula to win the talent contest so they get signed by the White House. So, sorry, that's probably quite confusing. They are going to enter a talent contest and he wants to use the papula on the judges. In order to convince Ian to let him do that, he uses the papula on him. But Ian realizes that it's being used on him tells him to get it off him uh it's the phrase it uses but the book says a residue remained he was no longer sure of his position and this is the potential effect of uh i don't know whether you want to think of it as marketing or pr or ideology or propaganda or whatever like how do you know what your own thoughts are when you're being bombarded with this propaganda and advertising it places that question there that perennial uncertainty like once you've been exposed you never know. Again, this is one of the big anxieties that Philip Kiddick has and that he's trying to map like you are on a kind of ontological level. You are completely unsure in this world of, of marketing and advertising. Like You don't know when and how and to what degree you've been affected. You can't be sure of your own position. Oh man, this episode's way longer than I expected. Um, sorry. Uh at least it hasn't been an episode for a while so hopefully this makes up for that and it's not just boring listening to me talk for ages a quick point on diversity in this book philip k dix talks about a puerto rican elite in new york there's a bit where he mentions a benefit for 50 black billionaires um, being held for an afro-muslim space colonization program i don't think isn't something that's a big part of the book or that I think Dick has anything interesting to say about necessarily. But it's a useful thing to use to think about what we mean when we talk about diversity and what we want for that. Does our kind of utopian vision of diversity mean that we have women that are CEOs and black billionaires? Um, I think there's two pretty obvious problems with that. One, I think the systems of uh, domination of like misogyny and racism are kind of inherent to capitalism so I don't think you could get that anyway but thinking about diversity in that way which I think um, liberal politics does when they talk about diversity when they imagine a more diverse future they th think that anybody they don't think about transforming the system they just think about the same system 
but with black people or women in positions of power. So what you're talking about there is leaving a fundamentally exploitative system intact and just extending the kind of range of who can be an exploiter. So yeah, I think that's just something worth mentioning when you're thinking about uh, what diversity means. Like I think a vision of diversity, utopian vision of diversity from someone like the Black Panthers where tackling racism also means radically transforming the system is more compelling and uh, realistic in uh, many ways. Going back to kind of some of the ideology and politics stuff, I guess, um, time travel, I have briefly mentioned, exists in this book. It's called Von Lessinger Equipment. First thing that's worth mentioning about that is the future here is represented as possibility. It's not inevitable. So here's a line from the book where um, one of the characters is kind of investigating possible futures he says other possibilities murky and dense spread out parallel with an almost occult darkness surrounding them what did these less likely futures consist of there is the point i'm simply trying to make is this is a utopian view of the future as i've mentioned before thinking about the future is not inevitable and history as contingent is is vital for utopian thinking like you have to not see the future as inevitable in any way but that is precisely what the elites do here even though they have access to this equipment they don't see it that way so here's uh, a, a quote of uh, from nicole who's thinking about von lessinger equipment she says surprise that was the element which von lessinger had nearly banished from politics everything now is pure cause and effect at least so she hoped you think about mega threads you see on twitter of people um, you know the game theory like trying to play politics like a like a game of chess or whatever um, thinking about politics as something where you make plays and calculate results and appeal to demographics and search for the ground that will give you the most support rather than arguing for a position based on, on principles this is the kind of view of politics which uh, Nicole is expressing here a politics of cause and effect where again this plays into this technocratic vision of politics where politics is something you do yeah like a, a kind of calculation that you make in some way but surprise returns in the book uh, for that political system surprise has returned in politics for us because these approaches inoculate you from thinking about politics in different ways they ignore this way of thinking kind of necessarily ignores the people that are ignored by the politics you currently have, and that will come back to haunt you. Um, that's instructive. We see that in the the coup at the end of the book. And again, this is a quote from the book uh, where they the, the coup happens and they're going to execute the secret council. We saw this possibility, but Bartol dismissed it as too improbable. So even when the information points in a direction that they don't like, they ignore it. Like they have access to, to this equipment. Um, so it's not even... The, the point I'm trying to make here is um, I think there's something inherently problematic about thinking in politics in this very like calculated cause and effect way anyway. But even if you even if you accept that, again, this is the whole thing of thinking you're immune to ideology. When the information points in a direction they don't like, they ignore it. Um, that's what happens in the book. And I'm not saying I wasn't surprised by Trump or Brexit or Corbyn because I was. Um, well, less so in, in the last case. But retrospectively, we could see that there were signs that were there, that were ignored, because that's not how politics works. Or um, you, know, you can't, you just can't run on a, a platform of nationalisation, in the case of, of Corbyn, even though evidence repeatedly shows that that's a very popular position. Like this idea that politics just doesn't and shouldn't function that way. I'm not saying that you never have to make strategic decisions, but I'm saying that utopian politics and an effective politics must start from a, a point of principle an idea of what kind of society you want to create um center in particular does not have that now um it only has it only has this chess game like twitter mega thread you know this the democrats should make this play to appeal to this demographic and then undercut their attempt to do this but you kind of get what i'm saying this very calculated idea of politics it's not really about principle it's about kind of finding a way to win which i do not think is effective and i think is a kind of falsity because again it, it depends on this idea of only thinking in terms of, of logic and being free from ideology and making calculations which you think you're doing but 
you will ignore it uh, all the evidence and information as soon as it doesn't fit what you think um, so it's kind of false in that sense as well i have talked way too long um if you care if you've not read the book just to tell you what the ending is Bertolt Gulps, the sons of Job, turns out to be the head of the council for a reason that's not really explained and isn't interesting. There's a coup that generates into a civil war and there's tactical nukes. And maybe this means that some Neanderthals that have gathered in California for some reason, who are implied to have maybe come from the past or maybe have been created by nuclear war or something, they might now uh, retake the world because humans are going to kill themselves or something like that. That's the end of the book. It's a bad ending. It's not a very good book, but hopefully I have pulled out some interesting things uh, by which I mean picked out one quote for the book and then used it to complain about centrist politics, which is effectively what I've done for a lot of this. I'm very sorry if this episode was too long. The next episode will be back to the interview format. I don't know what it will be. I have a few things that I'm kind of working on simultaneously and I hope the gap won't be as long, but I don't know. Something which I must do before I forget, uh, I meant to do in the last episode, a guy who does the Where's That Effect podcast got in touch with me to let me know he was doing uh, a double bill of episodes on Utopia. Um, I listened to the first one uh, and it was good. I haven't listened to the second one yet. So just thought that was worth mentioning. If you are interested in Utopia, you might find those episodes uh, interesting. So again, the podcast is called Words to That Effect. So just have a look if you are interested in that if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast um itunes uh, reviews on itunes would be very helpful to help me that helps with like getting the podcast up in rankings i'm sure my podcast has basically no imprint uh, on those rankings whatsoever so if some people could take the time to give me a review on itunes that would be very helpful i mentioned at the beginning that it is difficult for me to do these episodes at the rate I would like. If you would like to help me to do them quicker, I have a Patreon at patreon.com slash utopian horizons. Perhaps one day, who knows, maybe I will get uh, enough money through that that I can do as I would like to do, like bi-weekly episodes. Um, that would be ideal, but uh, whether that will ever happen, I don't know. But yeah, that's uh, patreon.com slash utopian horizons. You can email me at utopianhorizonspod at gmail.com. You can tweet me at utopianhorizons. You can tell me that this episode was far too long and I should keep them like half an hour short when I'm solo uh, and not doing the interview formats. Or you can tell me whatever else you like or ask any questions um, and I will endeavour to answer them in email, on Twitter or on the podcast. Uh, Also facebook.com slash utopianhorizons that I always forget to post on. My throat hurts from talking for too long, which you might be able to hear. Uh, So I will leave it there. I don't think there's anything else to say. Thank you for listening. I will be back soon with an interview episode. If if you're reading along with the Philip K. Dick episodes by chance or whatever, the next Philip K. Dick one will be on Clans of the Alphane Moon, I think. My internet's currently not working, so I can't check right now but i'm like 95 percent sure that's correct so yeah if you want to read the book for the next one uh i don't know when that will be like i say i will do an interview episode first before i get to uh another philip k dick one i'm still talking i will stop thank you for listening Uh, i'll be back soon bye (laughs)